The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we are thankful for the fact that we can sing that song, and it's, it's true that you have sent a son, a savior, and he will receive us. And that you invite us to come running and find in him a smile and open arms and a warm embrace and life. Thank you. You've made that true. You made it true by the cross. So it's true now, and it's true tomorrow, and it's true the next day, it's true. You are a savior who receives and so, Lord, will you use this time this morning now to open up your word and to call and draw us to you. We're all in different spots this morning, coming from different places, but the right direction is towards you and the right action is to take one step closer. So draw us this morning, please. Open this passage, help us to hear it, to understand it, and build us up for our good and for your honor. Thank you, Lord. Amen. We spent the last several weeks looking at the first couple chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. And what we've seen there has been a careful, if at times subtle, complex answer to some basic questions that people ask about Jesus' origin, his purpose, and the meaning of it all. Where did he come from? And who is he? And what does that mean for us? And is there any evidence for any of this? Matthew's been moving through those questions passage by passage, giving answers and repeatedly pointing to evidence. Old Testament prophecies predicted and then things actually really, truly, honest to goodness happened in time and in space. Evidence that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, whom God sent to save his people from their sins and especially, as we saw last week, to return us from our separation from God our, our alienation from him, our exile away from him, to return us back to the place of fellowship and blessing in relationship with God. That's what God generously offers in Jesus alone. This morning, we hear that again differently. Pretty differently, in fact. The tone changes a lot this morning. The argument doesn't. But the tone does. What was careful and, and almost subtle reasoning this morning becomes prophetic command. The same approach is there. Old Testament evidence, prophecies fulfilled in things and in people that actually happened. But it comes to us this morning on the fiery tongue of John the Baptist. Strident call for repentance. So, let me read the passage this morning, chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, and then I'll pass back through it, uh, clarify a few details before making two overarching observations. Now, I, I'm hoping not to preach it with the same kind of fire that John had, but this is clearly first to at least fourth gear, talking about baby Jesus and then John the Baptist. 
Here it is, chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That's John. From the end of chapter 2 to this passage, we skip ahead about 30 years. Big gap. Jesus is an adult now, and what we read here is, out of the blue, a man named John the Baptist. Other Gospels tell us more about John, his background and whatnot, but Matthew just gives it to us as he would have appeared on, on the scene in that original context. He just showed up in the wilderness and began to preach. And that's the key aspect of John's ministry. It's a preaching ministry. He only baptizes because of the preaching. He's a preacher, first and foremost, a prophet calling people to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, what, what brings him here? Why, why did he just start that? Where'd that come from? Well, he's doing this because he's the one sent by God as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prediction that God would send a voice to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. That's what's the, the quote in verse 3 from the prophet Isaiah. That's what he's getting at there. And verse 4 puts an even finer point on this fulfillment. Who in the Old Testament does verse 4 remind you of? Who dressed like that? Well, if you look at 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, there's a little story there about a king and some messengers of his when trying to identify an unknown prophet who'd sent the message a king. The king says to the guys who saw him, what'd he look like? And they said, he wore a garment of hair with a belt around his waist. And the king said, oh, that's Elijah. That's Elijah's uniform. That's what Elijah looks like. And people looked at John and said, he's wearing Elijah's uniform. 
And Matthew writes this, verse 4, so that we'll also think, there's Elijah again. One more thing to add into this. Flip back just a couple of pages in your Bible if you brought a paper Bible with you. You can flip back just two pages to the very last prophetic statement made in the whole era of the Old Testament. 400 years prior to this moment. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of destruction. 400 years prior to this, the last thing the prophets said before the radio got turned off and silence came was, before the day of the Lord, Elijah arrives to speak, and you'll turn the hearts of the people. That's what everybody expected from the Old Testament, and then out of the blue one day, a voice starts crying out in the wilderness, Get ready, the Lord is coming. Right near the River Jordan where the prophet Elijah departed, carried up in a cloud, right in the same location, same region. He's not literally Elijah. We know his name's John. Luke tells us his background. But he's in the same area of Elijah. He looks like Elijah. He talks the same message as Elijah. He has the same effect on people as Elijah. He fulfills Elijah. In the sense of what we talked about last week, fulfillment. Not straight line prediction, but these models that happened in the Old Testament that actually mean things back then. That Elijah was a real guy. He really did things, but it, there was more to come. And then he comes and completes it, fulfills it. Here's Elijah, John. And John was a big, big deal. Everybody in all of the land knew him, respected him, and politicians feared him. Which is probably what's behind verse 7, in fact. Carefully, the wording in the original language literally says the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to his baptism. Which is just a little bit different than saying they came to be baptized. Probably intentionally a little bit different. This is likely a delegation from the Sanhedrin, which is why there are Pharisees and Sadducees together. Those guys did not coexist other than in the Sanhedrin. It's probably a delegation from this political ruling body of the Jewish nation come to check out John and keep an eye on him. This growing movement. People being influenced in some way, not by them. They're not there sympathetic, which is why John receives them so sarcastically and with so much heat. He knows they're not there because they agree with what he's preaching. They think they're fine. If for no other fa fact that they view themselves as observant Jewish people who are descended from Abraham. And God promised to bless the children of Abraham, right? So we're good. Indeed, God promised to bless the children of Abraham. But here's John's point, echoed later by Paul and elsewhere in the New Testament. Who are the real children of Abraham? Those people who have the same faith as Abraham, not just the same blood. 
God can, and we know has, made followers, made children of Abraham, not only from rocks, but from Gentiles even. So this message is not just for other people. This is for the insiders. This is for Jew and for Gentile alike. Everybody needs to hear what John has to say here, and everybody has to respond to it. So that brings us to our first observation. Two points to make, and they are from John's basic message. He's got a, a two-part message. He's got a command that's rooted in a fact, in a statement. And because that's how it works, because the command comes from the statement, we're going to actually start at the end with the statement, with the fact. So here's first observation. The Lord, with his promised kingdom, has arrived. The Lord, with his promised kingdom, has arrived. That's the last part of verse 2. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's implied in verse 3, verse 11. The Lord is on his way. From John's perspective, the Lord is on his way, journeying towards us on on the way here. And so we need to take the road between him and us and smooth it out, fill in the potholes, flatten it all out, prepare the way, because he is coming. Prophesied in Isaiah, alluded to in Malachi. John preaches that that is right here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what does he mean by that? Well, first we need to clear up what he doesn't mean. Some people have mistakenly tried to make a big deal out of the fact that Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven here and all throughout this gospel different than the phrase kingdom of God, which is far more common in the other three gospels. Matthew says kingdom of heaven. Everybody else says kingdom of God. But there's no difference. We can compare the Gospels. We can look, for instance, at the the parable of the rich young ruler in Matthew and in Mark and see that the terms are just interchangeable. They're different ways of saying the same thing. So Matthew is not trying to make some sort of a subtle theological distinction. Kingdom of heaven is the same thing as kingdom of God, same thing as kingdom of Christ, kingdom of Messiah. It's just the kingdom. Furthermore, he's not talking about a kingdom that has a specific physical geographic boundary. We often think of kingdoms like the kingdom of France, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. There's a place where this kingdom is and a place where it isn't. He's not talking about a place. Rather, it's a reign, R-E-I-G-N, or a rule. And it is splashed into every place. A bit like raindrops, R-A-I-N, raindrops falling all over the earth at the beginning of a storm. Storm front comes and it begins to sprinkle and it's, it's raining there and there and there and there and there and there and there. It's raining in every place but not on every single individual spot of ground. You can look at your driveway at the beginning of a storm and you can see raindrop, dry, wet, dry, wet. You can see that. It's raining everywhere but not every place, everywhere. That's how the kingdom has come. The king is here now, started to take charge in this place, but it's come like falling raindrops, here and there and here and there. Everywhere, not in one specific locale, but not covering every single thing, which is why we can look out at the world right now and we can see if the kingdom has come, how can there be so much wickedness still? 
It's like the rain's falling. Now, John expected more of a storm like those that go crash, boom, rain. That's what John expected. The clouds to open and a flood. That's not what happened. It's sprinkling. Now, there's a time coming when Christ comes again and the whole place will be wet and the glory of the Lord will cover all of the earth as the water covers the sea. But right now, he has only just started to take charge. Everywhere, but not in every single spot everywhere. Since he's the Lord, what that means is he is enacting his rule and what's coming, 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 coming is a rule of righteousness and justice. He is pure and holy, holy, holy. There is no darkness in him, no, none at all. Which means that he is acting, and as he acts, as he rules, what he's doing is acting to root out and cut down and remove all that is displeasing and all that dishonors him and all that robs him and his father of proper glory. To remove it and cast it out of his creation one way or another. I need to be very clear about that. One way or another, King Jesus is acting to get rid of all sin and unrighteousness. And in particular, especially because of John's, how John saw things, expecting the storm. In particular, John's dominant note is one of fiery judgment. There's a lot here that's really serious, guys. It's just easy to read words on a page. See this. Like you see a dark sky with rain falling out of it and see. Storm is right here. Verse 10, an axe at the root of a worthless tree in an orchard or in a vineyard or something. One that does not bear fruit. This is a tree that bears bad fruit. It bears something that is unrighteous or impure, something that's dark and wicked, sin. And the verdict here is no longer a little more water and some fertilizer. It's an axe. Laid at the root. Already the first blow has fallen. It's not an axe poised. It's an axe that's landed once already. The language is active. It's, it's been laid at the root once. It's started. And the tree is going to be cut down and thrown into the fire of God's wrath already started or different analogy same point verse 12 how farmers used to and in some places still do harvest grain the kernel of grain grows wrapped in a husk so to get at that what's good in the middle the stalk is cut down placed on a hard flat surface like a threshing floor and beaten to break the grain and the husk apart and then a farmer with a winnowing fork think of something like a, like a pitchfork sort of comes in and throws all that collection in the air and the heavier grain kernel falls to the ground and the lighter chaff either blows away or settles on top to then be 
brushed off. And the chaff gathered together is then burned in, he says, an unquenchable fire. Fruitless trees and worthless chaff, the king and his reign will separate it all out and send it to the, be, to the fire to be destroyed. This is clearly a repeated reference to the fire of judgment. God's wrath in hell, which is real. He mentions the word wrath in verse 7 even. Jabbing at the Pharisees, not because it's not real, but because they don't believe it. It's real. And clearly, it's a clear half of what John is warning his listeners about and those of us who are his readers. And it takes up the most ink space. It's, it's the dominant half in this telling. What John is saying is coming, is right here, has already started to reach into this world is the judging ministry of Jesus. He says, this one is far mightier than I. I'm not even worried that he carry his sandals. He's God. He's the holy and almighty one. He's the king of heaven. Come in flesh to reclaim his creation, to clear his vineyard, to clear his threshing floor of all sinful rebellion and wickedness. Which means of all sinful and rebellious people. There's nothing more serious. And sometimes we dismiss this because we look out the world and say, ah, things just go on like normal. We or our neighbors are like people in the days of Noah would say, hey, we eat and we drink and we're merry. We, we, nothing changes. This is a guy building the boat. Yeah, but nothing changes. It started to rain already. It has not become what it will become, but it has begun already. Christ's coming means that the time of judgment is at hand, and we don't know when that is. It is very much like walking into a room and hearing a grandfather clock tolling at midnight. You hear it, bong. Was that number two or nine? Bong. Three or ten or six? I don't know. Bong. It's tolling. The king is here. The kingdom has come. This is serious. And it means hearing this, we need to hear the second point, which we'll come to. But this is not all that John has to say in the first point. And it's not all that the coming of this kingdom means. Look at the end of verse 11. The coming Lord and his kingdom reign brings something else too. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, it's easy, maybe even natural, to think that with the fire judgment mentioned in verse 10 and the fire judgment mentioned in verse 12, that right here in 11 in the middle, we get fire again, it's the same fire of judgment. But actually it's not. In the middle, something different. 
It's, it's actually the opposite of that. It's a positive statement. In the grammar, it's packaged with the Holy Spirit, and we should be thinking Holy Spirit and fire. We should be thinking Pentecost. Why did the Holy Spirit descend at Pentecost in tongues as of fire? This. The Holy Spirit and fire came upon believers. This is something that is for people, not against them. A purifying holy fire that doesn't destroy a person, but rather cleanses us. So the king's reign, right here in the middle, falling on such ones right here in the middle, if that's you, that means that God's kingdom reign God comes to dwell with you in the person of his Holy Spirit within. And why he's done that, in this context, the thing he's focusing on, why he's done that is to set you apart and enroll you, if you will, in a lifelong training problem, a process of working out of you all that is problematic. Sanctifying you, we might say cleansing you, refining fire to burn out of you the dross. So the Holy Spirit, in many other contexts, we can talk about how the Holy Spirit indwells believers, comes upon us to do many different things. Here, John's focus is he comes upon you to make war on your sin. Not you, on the sin in you. To purify it, to burn it out of you like a refining fire. So God comes one way or another, to take care of sin. And this, for us, is a great blessing because sin is your enemy, Christian. In some ways, we might wish that God was not so bent on removing sin because sometimes sanctification hurts. Sometimes the process of him burning out of us is a little bit hot. But this is a great blessing. It's one of the promised blessings of the kingdom, that the king's reign would come into us and would be set up inside of us, and he would be bent on making us back into the image of God, making us back into full, proper humans, making us righteous and pure and holy, like the one in whose image we were made. This is a good thing, and if we keep in mind what we sang earlier, that this Savior has open arms and welcomes us and brings us in, what we have here is a God who smiles upon us and says, I'm committed to making you different. My love means I'm committed to making you different. Committed to working out of you what's wrong. So not only salvation from sin and its penalty, not only no wrath, but more increasing salvation from sin's power and a shaping influence over us by his spirit to renew us on the inside you can be, you are being, you will be made new. Drop by drop, he will wash you clean. That also comes with the king and his kingdom, his spirit in fire for you, not just against you. So one way or another, he's going to get rid of sin. One way or another, Which way do you want? He either will cast out all those who cling to sin or will burn it out of those who cling to him. One way or another, he gets rid of sin. One way or another, he makes the world righteous and pure for the glory of God. Which way do you want? 
That takes us to the second point, the command. God calls us to live lives of faith-created repentance. God calls us to live lives of faith-created repentance. Because this king and this cleansing is coming, his command, John's command here, is really clear and really important. Verse 2, repent. What does that mean? It's pretty important that we get that word clear, that we understand what he's saying there when he says repent. Because all of us need to respond to that in different ways, as we'll see, but we all need to respond to it. So the core concept in the word repent is the idea of turning. So to repent or to turn, you're headed in one direction and you repent or turn from one thing to another. It's about change. It's about a switch. And of course, in the context of the Bible, we're talking about repentance from sin. And we know that God looks at the heart and teaches us that out of the overflow of the heart, our mouths speak and our hands act. So naturally, in this context, what he's talking about, the repentance that he's calling for, it's not just some sort of a formal statement like, okay, okay, I change. I change my mind. Maybe because you're a compliant person, somebody tells you to do something, you do it or you're intimidated by power, or you don't really care that much. Okay, I'll, I'll change. That doesn't cut it. He's not talking about just some formal statement of changed my mind. Nor is biblical repentance, what John means or what the Bible means, some sort of a tactical turning, or a, a clever political move, Sometimes not just our words change, but sometimes people actually do change and they, they, they live different lives. They walk in a different way because they've kind of, you know, checked the wind and realized, that, oh, this is, where, this is where we're going and this is what people want, this is what people expect. Maybe it, to the degree that any of the Pharisees or Sadducees were actually sympathetic to John or cooperating, maybe that's what they were doing. They were realizing a whole bunch of people think this is what we should be doing. Okay. I'll at least appear like I'm on board. Maybe some of them were actually there. We see this a lot in a context where we might call it cultural Christianity, where everybody around you believes, says, speaks in one way, and you kind of realize, I better get along to get along. People turn, change, speak, act in certain ways for all kinds of social and all kinds of political reasons, and that's not what we're talking about either. That's all a recipe for hypocrisy. Something that is one way on the outside, but inside our hearts are not there. Far from it. For biblical repentance... What John, what the Bible's talking about, repentance starts on the inside from the heart and then must clearly affect the outside. It must affect our lives. But here's the key point, one which is almost impossible for an outsider to evaluate. Only you and God can check this for you. 
Starts on the outside, starts on the inside, comes to the outside. But here's the point. Biblical repentance is a whole person turning from sin to righteousness. That is faith created. Not peer pressure created. Not political expediency creating it. Nothing like that. That is faith created. A whole person turning from sin to righteousness that is faith created. Here's what I mean. It's a person, or that repentance in a person. Here's the first point that we just said about the kingdom and the king coming. Right here at hand. It hears all that, it processes it, understands it, and then believes it. Yes, I see that, I understand it, that's true. And here's what it means, that sin and evil dishonors. It dishonors God, it destroys people. It's, it's wrong, not just intellectually, but I see it as dishonoring. And it believes that, and believes that that is wrong. And then also hears judgment is real, that God won't let that stand and believes that, but then also hears that the offer of saving grace is also real, that God will make, there is there's a possibility to not be cleansed out, but to be cleansed within, that God will actually, in some way, work on me to make me different, and that would be good, and wants that, and believes that point also. And here's the king calling out saying, come to me and I will cleanse you. And says, I believe that you will. And so says, I'm a sinner, Lord. I need help. What I am, what's in me is wrong. And you would cleanse this out. You would cast this away. But you would also in grace and mercy offer to come into me kindly and change me. And I need that and I want that and I can't make it. Help. That's repentance. Created by faith in the message. The message of what we are, of what God will do about that, but what God offers to change in us and says, yes, that's true, and I need it. Help. I turn from saying that I'm fine and I can handle it myself. My lineage, my heritage, my performance, my behavior is pretty good, good enough. No, it isn't. I repent of that and say, Lord, help. Believing that, you turn. That's faith-producing repentance. That's biblical repentance at its core. And it leads to a changed life because what it leads to is spirit-indwelling sanctification. God's power at work in us, the faith repenter. God's power changing us, the faith repenter, who consciously and deliberately says no to sin, yes, please help to him. And that's why John baptized also in addition to, to preaching this. The baptism, especially in that day, baptism wasn't just a Christian thing, not even just a Jewish thing. Baptism was done by people who wanted to say in some way, I'm in. I identify with that, whatever that is. That teacher, that philosophy, that school, that practice, that's me. I go into that and I come out of that different, identified with it. And John's saying, 
This biblical repentance, a whole life change based on faith of the Spirit of God moving into you, that's not a one and done thing. That's a one and started thing. Be baptized for repentance. Obviously, the repentance comes first is what gets you into the water. Why you wouldn't want to do this in the first place. But what he's talking about is get baptized for a life. A repenter. The life of being a repenter. You can't just talk the talk once. It's a walk that produces fruit after it. So embrace the turning. Be baptized for repentance. That was John's message to them there in that moment. And it's a message to us because of how it prepares the way for the Lord. Remember, that's the point of the, of the Isaiah quote, prepare the way of the Lord, fill in the potholes, smooth out the ruts, make the path straight. Repentance is the, the filling in of the potholes and the flat, flattening out of the ruts and the making of the path straight so that God can draw near to us and be received by us for the first time or repeatedly again and again. Sin is the barrier that stands in the way of fellowship, of, of relationship, and sin is the barrier that stands in the way of fellowship. Obviously, that's an important message for any of us who are sitting here this morning, not a Christian. I don't know where everybody is. I don't know everybody here. But if you're sitting here this morning not a Christian, maybe you know you're not a Christian, or maybe, check this, maybe you've thought, well, of course I'm a Christian because of my bloodlines. Parents were. Grandfather was. Grandma really, really was. I must be. My bloodlines. John makes this clear. Not even bloodlines will lead you to Abraham suffice. Bloodlines don't do anything. If you're sitting here and you're not a Christian, you, you, you haven't actually closed with Christ in this biblical repentance, a wholehearted turning from sin to Christ driven by my faith in the problem and the offered solution. If that's not you, then hear this and remember the first point. And may God open your eyes and give you a heart to see it and believe it. It's raining. It's not pouring yet, but it's raining. The kingdom is right here. What's the evidence of that? There's a church in all of the world. It is wet everywhere. There's a church in all of the world. This Jesus is still known millennia after he lived and died. And the evidence, well, Matthew's been unpacking that for pages now. Story after story. Prophecy fulfilled in nobody but this Jesus. There, there's the evidence there. You, if, if you'd like to, you can listen to the previous sermons and work that all through. This is real. And so is the coming judgment. God will cleanse out of this world all sin and all the people who cling to sin and will not turn to him. Will not turn to King Jesus. Repent and come to Jesus. 
Now what John did not know to say, because John did not know it, was how that happens. John did not know the story of the cross. John's a really interesting character. He's a great prophet. He's like the pinnacle of the Old Testament, who what he does, his job is to like put his hand on the doorknob and open the door. But he never actually got into the room to see the rest of the story. How does this all actually work? You notice he did not preach the cross because he didn't know of the cross. The rest of the story now is how that works is when you repent and turn to Jesus, you don't just say help and he says, okay, I'll help. What he says is in place of you taking the judgment of your sin, I'll take the judgment for your sin myself. That's what the cross is about. Jesus went to the cross to take the judgment of all who say, please help. And he rose again after that to prove, and that worked. I live again. You with me, you live again. Obviously, there's a message there for those who, at the moment, you're not a Christian yet. Repent. Turn, hearing all this, believe it. Believe the danger you are in, the insufficiency of your own ability, and the offer of Jesus to, at the cross, take the punishment that's yours onto himself, forgive you, and make you new. Repent, turn to him in faith. That's an astonishing and real offer for those who aren't yet Christians, but that same message actually speaks to those of us who are Christians also. Martin Luther, I think it was he who first said this, Martin Luther said that all of the Christian life is repentance. I've heard that in a bunch of places. I'm not sure if it's his originally. All of the Christian life is repentance. You've been called to identify as a repenter. Christian, that's, that's our walk constantly. I repent, I repent, I repent, I repent. Not the initial repentance. I, I am a Christian. This is, the, this is the repentance of a Christian, not to become a Christian, of a Christian. Continually, the same faith-created repentance. It's my daily key to fellowship. So he has come to me once, but verse 3, that the, the approach of God to me over this... It, you can apply that just the same to the Christian life. Sin creates a barrier between me and Jesus, not my relationship with him, but my fellowship with him. Your fellowship with him is impaired by sin. Clear that out, that he might come and draw near and you might commune with him happily and sweetly. So, do you need to repent, Christian? of something, even right now. Ask the Lord that question, even right now. I mean like right now. Lord, what do we need to turn from to you? What do we need your help cutting out of my life, burning off of me like dross, that I would be purified? What, what Lord? And let me say, sometimes... I think, sometimes I think, that some sort of a settled, kind of extended period of reflection is helpful. 
like to sit down for a half hour or an hour or an afternoon or to go on some personal retreat and say like, Lord, examine me, show me. That can be helpful at times. Sometimes that creates a bizarre hyperanalysis. And I think most time it's not necessary. Because when I ask, I don't even finish the sentence yet. Lord, what do I need to owe that? I don't need hours to think about it. It's right there. And I've spent hours doing, I see no evil, I hear no evil, I do no evil. Lord, what do I... There it is. And it's eating my lunch because I keep making it a sandwich. Help. Ask the Lord, just right now even, what do I need? See if you even finish the sentence. What is it? Maybe it's some particular behavior, yes. Maybe it's some, some belief or something you're holding on to or some person you're holding at length. Something that dishonors the Lord, that displeases him, that is unrighteous, that isn't Christ-like. Is there something that grieves him? Does it grieve you? What is it? Lord, I'm sorry. Thank you for the cross that atones for this sin. Here's, here's the language. You don't have to say it quite like this, but here's the language of the sort of thing I'm talking about. Thank you for the cross that atones for this sin. Remember that because we're talking to him like father-son, like father-daughter. We're not talking to him like king and distant subject. He's brought us in. He's made you precious to him. You're talking to a friend. Thank you for, thank you for taking care of this on the cross. Thank you for that. And thank you for pointing this out in me because you want to cleanse me of it. Not because you want to rub my nose in it, because you want to liberate me. Thank you. Now, help me. Thank you for the cross that atones. Thank you that I'm your beloved one. But help me be different in regards to this. Would you show me the truth that I need to believe and help me open my eyes and give me faith to believe it? Will you show me the course of action that I need to take so as to avoid this? Will you show me the people that I need to include as accountability, as support, as help, as encouragement? Help, Spirit, help me. Help my mind to be different, my eyes to see different, my feet to walk differently. That's repentance as a Christian from faith. See, the whole thing is faith. You're, the whole thing is looking at God, believing that he is, that he welcomes you, that he responds to you, that he helps you. It's repentance from faith. It's not less than determined effort. It's more than it. It leans into the promises of God, relies on God's spirit, calls on him for help to produce faith, to produce a walk that matches this faith-based repentance. That's the path to experiencing kingdom blessing. Repent. The kingdom's here. The king is here. And he wants to bless you by cleansing you. So repent. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. 
we invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121. 